penetrating and perfect stomach is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. I vow to taste the truth of the Katagata's words. So, uh, good morning and good evening to those in America. Uh, can you hear me okay? Can you hear me okay? Um, we're wearing our masks in the Zendo today because we have some Sangha members who are a little bit uh, vulnerable, so we're taking care of each other. Uh, today we have a guest speaker, uh, which we're very honoured to have Roshi Andrew Tuttle here with us uh, on Zoom. He is the teacher for Ozen in uh, Central North Coast, New South Wales. He's a teacher in the tradition of Charlotte Joko Beck, and he's also trained with the Diamond Sangha and Burmese Vipassana in the Blue Mountains. He received transmission from his teacher, Barry Majid in New York, who leads Ordinary Mind Zendo. And uh, we are grateful that he's going to help us deepen our love and appreciation for Buddha's teachings today. So thank you very much, Andrew. We'll, we'll mute ourselves and hand it over to you. Well, thank you very much, <clears throat> Nettie, for that very kind introduction. Um, one of the things about the Ordinary Mind Zen School is we uh, did drop the honorific of Roshi. So you could call me sensei or teacher. We don't use the honorific of Roshi in this particular school. Uh, maybe one day uh, my teacher, Barry, may allow us to call him Roshi or old teacher, but maybe he's not quite old enough yet. <clears throat> um, as uh, very uh, appreciative of this uh, invitation from uh, uh, from Nettie to talk to you today. And uh, I have be, uh, been uh, creating, uh, co-creating a, a culture here, a Sangha here. We call it Ozen, that was named by the Sangha. And uh, we, uh, we are a branch of the Ordinary Mind Zen School, which was founded by Joko Beck. And Joko received her transmission from Maizumi Roshi. And uh, she developed her own unique style as a, quite a, 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 a reformist Zen teacher, a woman Zen teacher. Uh, she began uh, teaching in the, uh, I can't remember when she began teaching, but certainly her books began to come out in the late 80s. And uh, she was quite uh, one of the leading figures in, in bringing a more everyday uh, psychological approach to Zen practice. And my teacher, Barry Majid, being a psychoanalyst, has certainly followed in that tradition. Um, 
I met Neti through meeting Kokio uh, Luminasau, and I felt a strong connection to Kokio's teachings. And um, like Kokio, um, I've become interested in debates around what is self or no self in, in, in Buddhism, and also the transmission of the non-dual from other uh, Buddhist schools, such as Yogacara or Buddha nature teachings, Dzogchen, and also uh, non-Buddhist teachings, such as the Avaita teachings, or what we might describe as the perennial philosophy. <clears throat> I also have an interest in uh, non-dual or transpersonal psychotherapy and Western philosophy. Although I certainly wouldn't describe myself as a professional philosopher, it's just a hobby. Um, I got a particular interest in the uh, in Western the continental philosophy in phenomenology and existentialist tradition. And one one concept that has struck me um, in both Zen and uh, Western philosophy, um, apart from the uh, infinite volumes of uh, philosophy and what we mean by self, um, has been the uh, the concept of what we call the observing self or the unobserved observer. And um, in regards to that particular topic, I recommend a book called The Observing Self, which was um, written by a guy called Arthur Dykeman in 1982, who is a, uh, he was a, I think he's still alive, a, a psychotherapist from the United States. And I think that book was uh, quite influential on Joko Beck's teachings as well, because Joko talks quite a bit about the observing self in her, in her books. So I became interested in the unobserved observer, if you like, as the doorway into our true self. Um, this. Uh, this field of awareness, this, this, this global field of awareness that we all participate in. And um, another key figure from Western philosophy was a guy called Edmund Husserl. Um, unlike Dykeman and others who came across the notion of the unobserved observer from the wisdom traditions, Husserl actually discovered it for himself um, through his, what he called his phenomenological investigations at the turn of the 20th century. He died in about 1941, I think, something like that. And uh, Husserl uh, talked about discovering uh, my true self and or what he called the transcendental, transcendental subjectivity or the transcendental I transcendental in the sense like uh, the one which is aware is not something that we can see or hear or touch. It's not an object. It's not a thing like all the other phenomena that we experience in ourselves and in the world. It's the kind of question we, do, we explore when we ask the Cohen question, who am I? Hmm.
And over the past few months, I became interested in exploring some of the research by a guy called, who's now, who died a few years ago, called Francis Varela, who wrote a book called The Embodied Mind. Um, Varela, and, and, uh, Varela was a biologist who was interested in systems theory and Buddhism and the nature of consciousness. You know, he practiced in the Tibetan tradition. And uh, Varela and his colleagues um, were inspired by Husserl and, and uh, began exploring their experience of Buddhism and, and other first person experiences. Um, and they developed what they called a disciplined and practical approach to exploring experience. And they published the, some of the findings in a book called On Becoming Aware. Um, that was back in, when was that published? 2002 or something like that. Um, yeah, 2002. So um, they drew in that particular research, they kind of developed their own kind of take on, on Husserl and, uh, and a method that Husserl had used that they adapted they, and Husserl called this method the epoche, um, and uh, Varela and colleagues identified three aspects or three key aspects of this epoche, and began to apply that to understanding meditation and our first-person experience. Interestingly, the actual Greek word epoche uh, that Husserl took, he took it from uh, the... Uh, the Hellenistic philosophy, the Greek philosophy at the time, which was known as the skeptical school of skeptics. And uh, this branch of Greek philosophy, they, they, they called themselves, interestingly, they called themselves investigators. And the main practice of this uh, epike, which literally means stop or suspending, was to actually suspend judgments and beliefs as the main practice towards developing what they called ataraxia or tranquility or peace of mind, which you know, we're all familiar with from our Buddhist studies. One of the main exponents of skepticism was a philosopher called Piro, who actually journeyed to the East and spent some time in India. And he actually observed Buddhist monks and other yogis. So he was uh, traveling in India somewhat, somewhat after the time of the historical Buddha. But probably no doubt that he would have been influenced by some of those teachings. So today I'm going to uh, introduce you to this process or of what they identified of these three movements of becoming aware, and then guide you through an experiential exercise I call the gathering. Like um, Kokio, um, I do enjoy sometimes playing around with experiential exercises. It's not a part of traditional Zen practice, but it's something I think is worthwhile sometimes exploring. Because we know whether we're practicing zazen or listening to a dharma talk or practicing on a koan, it all in the end it all comes back to our experience or the experiential field that we're in. 
And what we're exploring today is, you know, the, the, we can look at, you know, non-duality as being the non-duality of both duality and non-duality, the two sides of the one coin. And on the one side of the coin, you could say there are the contents of awareness, and on the other side of the coin is awareness itself. And for most of the time, what Husserl called the natural attitude is that we're, we are, we live in the world of, uh, of duality. Um, and um, we could call, and probably the, the dominant culture that we live in is the materialist paradigm. So um, we live and we're conditioned to live within this, this culture, the materialist paradigm, which we all take for granted. And Husserl was quite challenging of that. And, one of the things he bracketed in his, in his phenomenological explorations was the belief in the external world, which is why sometimes phenomenology is linked to the Yogacara school, but that's a whole massive topic and I'm not gonna go into that today. But the, the thing about it is, we're very familiar with one side of that coin. We're very familiar with the relating in the marketplace of duality and so on. But we're very well, we're less acquainted and less used to meeting on the other side of the coin. I'm kind of like a beginner in this process as well, a beginner's mind in how we meet on this other side of the coin. <clears throat> so um, I hope you will enjoy this process and this time that we have together, this precious time that we have together. So just be, before we go into the exercise, the three movements of the epike that Varela and his colleagues identified was first of all, what they call bracketing or suspending. So it's bracketing or suspending belief, in, in bracketing beliefs or suspending our judgments about ourselves and the world, basically. In other words, all the taken for granted ways, all the taken for granted habitual ways we have of being in the world are kind of like bracketed and suspended. And then if you apply this to um, meditation practice, um, it's the sense in which the second movement is to redirect our attention. So rather than our attention being lost and caught in all the objects of the external world and, and focusing out there all the time, um, getting lost in the consciousness of things, whether we're watching TV or working or talking, the redirect, the second movement is the redirecting of attention. And if we speak primarily very simply in terms of Buddhist meditation, as shamatha being concentration, the passion as being this kind of choiceless awareness or this more global awareness, then it's a sense in which the redirecting of attention is, if we're talking about meditation, is either towards the object such as the breath, if you're actually doing a concentration practice, or redirecting attention towards this, pointing the finger, what is this which is aware? What is the one which is aware? This, this this awareness that we can't actually see, but which everything's appearing within. 
And uh, so you can't actually see awareness as an object or grasp awareness, it's ungraspable. But we can actually allow our attention to rest as awareness and just, just, just gently abide in awareness itself without sort of abiding in global awareness rather than bringing our attention to a particular object. Another, another kind of form of bracketing or suspending which Joko Beck used to teach and you'd find in other the passionate traditions is, is thought labeling. So for example, Joko would say, for a certain period of time during a Zazen practice, label your thoughts for five or 10 minutes, um, such as you might be having the thought, I wish I didn't have any thoughts. And Joko would say, just gently say to yourself, having the thought, I wish I didn't have any thoughts. That's a kind of suspending or bracketing technique. And uh, so that we are, by practicing labeling, we're bringing ourselves out of that pull into our usual taken for granted ways of being, such as getting lost in thoughts and feelings. And coming back to, I am aware of my thoughts, I am aware of my feelings, we're redirecting our attention in that way. And the thought, so we've got the bracketing, the redirecting of attention, and the third movement is primarily just going to the letting go or the resting or the abiding, the letting go of the grasping and just abiding and resting in awareness. or just resting in terms of the, if you're doing a shamatha practice, just resting in the, the concentration practice and letting everything else go. It also includes a kind of returning as well because it's circular, because you, you know, if you get lost or pulled back into getting caught in something, then we return to the, uh, we return to the practice of suspending and then redirecting and letting go. So that was the kind of pattern that they identified and started to apply in their research. And it's a kind of nice, I think, a nice way of um, recognizing the kind of practice that we do in that way and understanding it. So in this, we're going to start the ex exercise now. Um, basically, the exercise will go through three phases. In the first phase, and this is a kind of playful exercise, don't take it too seriously, but it's nice. First phase, I'm going to playfully demonstrate how we use the epoche to suspend our belief in what uh, Arthur Dykeman called the trance of everyday life, or what we call in our Zen school the self centered dream. And uh, moving to and disclosing that which is always here, which is the, the open empty field of awareness. And then in the second phase of the exercise, we, we explore that shared field of awareness together. And uh, during which time, if you like, I'll invite you to share your experience of that. You can respond by directly describing your experience or you can may just respond by maintaining Silence, if you like, until we come to an end.
I'll signal the beginning of the exercise with the with my uh, with my singing bowl, and uh, I'll I'll signal the uh, the end of it with the with the bowl as well. So assume you're relaxed, Zazen posture. You have your eyes open or closed. Just settling on the breath. And I'm going to invite you all to a gathering. I'm just going to begin with two quotes. The first is from case 23 of the Gateless Barrier. Don't think good and don't think evil. At this very moment, what is your original face? Well, it's a kind of inquiry question, right? And then the second quote, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. That's by Rumi. We could say the world is too full to talk about or too empty to talk about. So we're going to meet each other in this field of global awareness, open, empty awareness, beyond good and evil, where we all meet on a common ground the common ground of our own shared being, if you like, here together now. In this mysterious opening we all share, we call it awareness, we could even call it love. I will be inviting you to knowingly be the peace that you in inherently are already. As we share our shared being together in this field. However, in order to meet each other there, we need to do a little preparation, a little bit of a spring cleaning, if you like. Clear the ground, so to speak, if we're going to enter here together through the gateless barrier of Zen. And uh, I'll just quote the first paragraph of Women's Preface from the gateless barrier, says, the Buddha mind and words point the way. The gateless barrier is the Dharma entry. There is no gate from the beginning. So how do you pass through it? 
Haven't you heard that things which come through the gate are not the family treasure? Things gained from causal circumstances have a beginning and an end, formation and destruction. So in a way, we're going to prepare the ground by letting go all those things that are not the family treasure until we end up with the, the treasure itself, hopefully. So everything's coming and going, coming and going, but this aware presence here now has no beginning or end. It's just simply now, just this. But for many years, we have been conditioned to experience ourselves as separate and divided, both within and without. So to enter through the gateless barrier, we have to ask the gatekeeper of duality, the keeper that keeps us divided from others and from within ourselves. The gatekeeper thinks it's there to protect us. But in, in, in protecting us, it inadvertently walls us off. So we need to really get the cooperation of the gatekeeper to let us pass through. And it may be reluctant to do so at first. So you need to remind the gatekeeper that you're here for a gathering and you want to actually acknowledge the gatekeeper and thank the gatekeeper for all the hard work it's done. It's always reluctant to let down, it's, 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 it's guarding us and it's very vigilant and it's reluctant to let down its guard. So we have to offer it a different role. And what we're gonna be doing in this is to, I mean, the reason why the gatekeeper is there in the first place is because we all got hurt as children in one way or another. And we all developed this self, which is a, basically a defended separate self, an imaginary self with more vulnerable aspects that were traumatized and more protective parts on me. And so the gatekeeper is one of those protectors. So in order to enter into this, this openness that we already are, we need the gatekeeper to relax, let down its vigilance. So as part of this process, we're actually offering the gatekeeper a different role to play. Um, we're offering the gatekeeper a chance to actually shift from being a gatekeeper to becoming more of a custodian, a custodian of this field that we're talking about where we can meet and dwell together in this sense of openness without any sense of identity. So we simply allow our awareness to shine on the gatekeeper. The gatekeeper is usually experienced either as a collection of beliefs and protective strategies, beliefs such as the world is a dangerous place, other people can't be trusted, strategies such as pleasing others, etc. Or you can experience the gatekeeper as a sensation, a sensation of contraction or tightness, which is usually present when we sit normally. You can get it, become aware of 
various areas of sensations and different regions that have a sense of tightness or contraction. All those, those kind of conditioned memories from all the years where we had, we felt that we've, from being hurt, we've had to defend ourselves and hold ourselves tight. So we're, we are inviting the gatekeeper in this practice just to relax now, to let go and relax so that we can enter into this mysterious opening of our shared being, which, has been, which goes by many names, which you're all familiar with, self, awareness, presence, the natural state, true nature. In order to rest in this, we need to divest ourselves from all those taking for granted ways of being in the world. And these taking for granted ways of being in the world are a kind of normal or collective amnesia, a kind of self-forgetting, forgetting of our true nature. We could say that we all suffer from mistaken identity disorder, MID, but unfortunately you won't find that in the psychiatric diagnostic manual. So we're going to start by divesting or disinvesting ourselves from these taken for granted ways of being as a personal self. And these are often very emotional investments, which can be testified why sometimes people literally die for these, these investments in these particular identities. They may die for, a, uh, uh, they may even kill themselves out of despair of losing them. So it's a fairly serious matter. These identities which have been internalized by our socialization process over many years as children, they become a taken for granted social construction of reality. And they also, in our particular culture, tend to get associated with ideas of ownership and um, you can't really run a capitalist liberal legal system without concepts of ownership. And those concepts of ownership have also been fundamental in shaping how we experience ourselves as well. Not only how we experience ourselves, but how nation states experience themselves as well. And the whole concept of boundaries that are drawn So before we start to disinvest ourselves from these identities, I just want to reassure you that um, we're not trying to eliminate these identities, but rather just to see them more clearly. They're that, not that much different from the clothes we put on in the morning to cover our nakedness. To see clearly they're not who we truly are, so you can come back at the end of the exercise and put those clothes back on, so to speak, put those identities back on, but hopefully we don't totally lose ourselves in them again. So we can take them less seriously. So now we're gonna to start to bracket or suspend belief in some of these taken for granted ways of constructing ourselves and the world. So let's start with our documents of identity, all those little filing cabinet here that I have and all those little neat folders which have all these documents of identity. Starting with our birth certificate, this little piece of paper that our parents are given that has our name and our surname. 
our age, our gender, the time we were born, the country we were born in, the, the, the town and country we were born in, determines the kind of um, citizenship we become, the nationality we become. Just this, this tiny piece of paper with words written on it, which becomes such a significant shaping of our lives and other people's lives. I mean, are we really born at a certain time, uh, you know? Um, this notion of being born on a certain date, a certain time, that sense of that linear time is a construction. The sense of um, the gender which is written on the birth certificate and um, the naming, the name as well, that we don't have any choice we are named by our parents and the sense in which it's we just sort of born into this construction from the get-go and uh, so gradually we acquire all that sense of identity and we take it on and we begin to own it becomes part of the ownership structure and it's it's encouraged by the, um, the culture we live in so I want you just literally in your imagination only, <laughs> just burn your birth certificate. Um, just say goodbye to your where you were born. Say goodbye to the sensing of age that you might have because of your birth certificate. Say goodbye to the sense of, of gender that was assigned to you when you were given your birth certificate. And so on with your passport. For those of you who have been fortunate enough to travel overseas, um, again, just in your imagination, not literally, just burn your passport, burn that sense of national identity. Now we are literally refugees without a, without a home state. We're just preparing ourselves, of course, to take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, right? Let's not take refuge in our, we can participate as citizens, but let's not take the notion of that identity too seriously. And after all, aren't we just one earth and one people? Also in your filing cabinet somewhere, you probably have all your certificates of achievement, all the certificates you got from primary school and from high school, and if you're lucky from university or unlucky from university, your high school certificate, all those ways in which we were assessed and evaluated, all the ways we could experience ourselves as personal failures or successes, whatever the case may be. Burn your high school certificate. Let go of all those uh, gradings and evaluations. And for those of us who had, you know, really low self-esteem and really need to get the top, you know, those of us who kept going and got our PhDs, you know, burn the PhDs as well. 
even let go of your identity as a Zen teacher if you happen to be given a little certificate that says you're now a Zen teacher. We can't just stop with all those certificates. We have to, all the history, all the personal history we carry in, um, in those narrative memories, as well as our bodily memories. The bodily memories are more difficult to let go of, actually. They're much more difficult and take more time. But the narrative memories, we can, we can start to bracket those and kind of like erase that personal history all the events and stories of our life, just from a narrative point of view, all those stories we tell ourselves, all our personal success stories, all our personal failure stories, all our not good enough stories, all our lovable, unlovable stories, all of that kind of stuff. We can just let go of all that, bracket all of that, all those personal beliefs about ourselves. And not just the past as well. Let go of all those dreams and hopes for the future. Let go of all of that, all those planning. Remember when I was uh, used to, when I was sitting at doing the, the passionate training at the Blue Mountains, sitting in those uh, long days, hour after hour, planning, planning, planning what I was going to do in the future, what I was going to achieve after I got my PhD, what I was going to do, et cetera, et cetera. Let go of all that, all that future stuff. Now moving to the body, this is more difficult. So we'll drop the conceptual body, how we relate to ourselves, bracketing our identification with the way in which we objectify the body. Let go of all concepts about your body, whether you see yourself as too fat or too thin, too short or too tall, too old or too young, too big or too small, all of those kinds of concepts of the body, let all those go. And let's just explore the lived experience of the body, the stream of sensations that are changing from moment to moment. Notice how our sensations that we experience and the sounds we experience and the different feelings and thoughts that we are experiencing are all taking place in the same field of awareness. We can let go of the constructions of inside and outside. The sounds, are appearing within us, or if you like, there is no outside or inside. Our experience of the body doesn't necessarily end at the membrane of the skin. The mountains and rivers are singing to us. The sense of boundaries falling away of the boundlessness of awareness, where it has no edges, no limits, no beginning or end, just this one indivisible stream of dynamic flowing, everything coming and going in this now presence. Let's just step up into this opening that we are, 
just resting in this vastness like the sky, letting go, nothing to do, nowhere to go. And when we've, when we've shed ourselves of, of all those identities, and we're just resting here in this, truly, is there anything missing? Is there anything lacking? Just enjoy this deep presence of body and mind dropping away, dropping away where we are gathering together now in this space of deep peace. And we can rest in this here together. So we're now entering into what I call the witnessing phase of this practice, where you can share your experience. We're just going to sit in this openness now together this shared field of awareness, divested of all those identities. If you wish to share something, you can just simply describe your direct experience or simply continue to enjoy just being this shared field of awareness. We're starting to explore together the other side of the coin. This where we meet in this field, where we're not meeting with our usual identities. Sense the spaciousness both in front of you and behind you. The sense of awareness of space to each side of you above you and below you, just a sense of just being in this open, unlimited, boundless space of awareness. Without a separate self-center, we're all present within the shared field of open awareness. So it's fine to share something or still just remain quiet. Just noticing anything which is arising, disappearing. The waves and currents that are moving through the sea of awareness. Is there any sense of resistance to just being in this shared field? Feel free to share your experience of the present moment as it is arising. And just ask yourself the questions, what is this? Who am I? Can I lose this? Let's enjoy this collective presence. There's nowhere further to go, nothing missing.
Well, we could sit here for a long time, but I'm just aware of the construction of linear time. And we've, we've actually got to 11.30. So I better, better ring the bell. Thank you, Francis. Thank you for being here. Well, I'll, I'll say a short thing. Uh, it was wonderful meditation that you led, and I think it might help us to just the simple step in our daily life of stepping out, one step out and looking and just noticing, oh, I'm a little, little agitated right now, or I'm slightly nervous right now, or I'm feeling a little bored right now. Just that one step helps, I think, soften the identification and is incredibly valuable. Just even that one little movement uh, can help us then not kind of get so bound up with the up and down of life because life goes up and down all the time. So I, I think that this, this guided meditation today, I think will be beneficial for us in just that, that practice alone. So thank you.